exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Leviticus used to be the very first book Hebrew children were taught growing up in ancient Israel. Today, it's usually the last book anyone wants to study. Usually Leviticus is where your Bible reading plan goes to die. It is so foreign to us. It is so strange and bloody and repetitive to us that it makes it incredibly difficult for a modern American to sit down and enjoy this ancient work. Now, when I was a young Christian, I was told that literally nothing in Leviticus matters for Christians to read, but you still have to read it because it's in the Bible. And that just made trying to read this book a total chore. And I know most of you can absolutely relate. Some of you may remember that when I first became the pastor here at Oregon Baptist Church, we started a class on the Old Testament in Sunday school where we just went book by book through the Old Testament. And when we started this class, I asked everyone, what's your favorite Old Testament book and what's your least favorite Old Testament book? And can you guess what the unanimous decision was for the least favorite book? But let me tell you that when I taught that class on Leviticus, it was one of my favorite classes of all time. And ever since then, I've been dying to preach through this book. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Leviticus chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 96. 96. And as you're turning, let me tell you why you should care about this book at all. First, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is inspired and God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. That's why we preach verse by verse on Sunday mornings. I'm not allowed to skip over the tough verses or chapters that make us uncomfortable or that we don't like, but it's built out of this foundational belief that all of scripture has something to say to us as Christians. We believe that all the Bible is God's word and that it's all useful for us. The second reason you should care about Leviticus is because it all points to Jesus. There was a time after Jesus had risen from the dead, but no one knew that he had risen from the dead. And so Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples who don't know that it's Jesus. They don't recognize him. And these disciples were depressed And they told this random man they didn't realize was Jesus. They told him that they were disappointed because they were hoping Jesus was going to come and redeem Israel. But now that he's been crucified, their hopes were dashed to pieces. So Jesus says to these two disciples, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't you realize that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things before he entered his glory? And then beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he explained to them what what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Leviticus is one of the books of Moses. And Jesus tells us that Leviticus teaches that the Messiah would have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. And let me tell you something, church. The whole Bible is Christian scripture. And one of the major reasons we struggle with Leviticus is because we miss all the ways that it points to Jesus. And my prayer this morning is that you would be able to read this book and delight in it. My prayer is that you wouldn't fear it when it comes up in your Bible reading plan, but that you would even look forward to it. My prayer is that you would see Leviticus as useful for your life as a Christian. And most importantly, my prayer 
is that you'd be able to understand the work of Christ in a deeper and more meaningful way. This book is glorious. People think that this book is just some outdated priestly tech manual, but I'll tell you, it's a lot more like poetry than a priestly tech manual. Because in Leviticus 1, we're going to see three ways that God calls. Three ways that God calls. First, God calls us by telling us to come near. God calls us to come near to him, verses 1 through 2. Second, God calls us to make atonement in verses 3 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 17, God calls us all, rich or poor. God calls us to come near to him, to make atonement in all of us. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Dear gracious Lord, the book of Leviticus scares us, scares me, because there's so much we don't understand. It's so foreign to us. But we ask that you would open our eyes to see new and glorious things in your word. May our spirits delight when we read this book. And by the power of your spirit, may the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. It's in Christ's perfect name we pray. Amen. Look to Leviticus verses 1 to 2. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And stop there. One of the reasons Leviticus gets such a bad rap, I think, is because it has a terrible English name. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, they actually picked new titles for almost all the Old Testament books. And this book became known as Leviticus, which literally means the things related to the tribe of Levi, which we can all agree is just a terrible name. But its Hebrew name is awesome. The first five books of the Bible were all written by Moses, and we usually call this collection of five books the Pentateuch or the Torah. And for the books of the Torah, the title for each book is the first word written in each book. So for instance, in Hebrew, the name for Genesis is actually in the beginning, which you may realize is the opening to the book of Genesis, but it's one word in Hebrew that just translates in the beginning. And the Hebrew name for Leviticus is one word that translates and he called out, and he called out. And that's a hundred times better than Leviticus. And let me tell you why. After God had saved the Israelites from slavery, after God split the Red Sea so that the Israelites could walk on dry land, God made a covenant with the Israelites. God made a promise with the people that he would be their God as long as the people kept the Lord's commands. And God promised that he would dwell among this new people, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So God told Moses to build a tent of meeting. And actually, you read Exodus, and the first half of Exodus is all the stuff we see in the movies of all the plagues and everything. The second half of Exodus is entirely dedicated to this tent that God is telling Moses to build. And this tent was so that man could meet with God and not die. It was a new Eden. This tent of meeting was designed to be like the Garden of Eden, a new place where man could be in God's presence. And in Exodus, we read that God used to speak with Moses face to face on Mount Sinai. But something happened. In Exodus 32, when Moses was on Mount Sinai speaking with God, the people got impatient with Moses. So they made a golden calf to be their new God. And so Moses comes down the mountain and God is ready to kill everyone. He's like, I'm wiping them all out. I'm making a new nation out of you. 
And Moses pleads for the people and God spares the Israelites. But there's still one problem that is not resolved from the end of Exodus. Look back to the very end of Exodus, right before Leviticus 1. Look at Exodus 40, verse 34. Exodus 40, verse 34. It says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites had done exactly what Adam and Eve had done. They had sinned against God and that sin separated them from God. So now they can't even use this new Eden. They can't even use this tent that they just spent all this time building. Which is why we read in Leviticus 1.1, And the Lord called out to Moses from the tent of Eden. And the reason this book is named, And He Called Out, is because this book is trying to answer this question. How do we get back into God's presence? And look at what happens when Leviticus ends. You don't need to turn there, but at the very beginning of the next book, at the very beginning of the first verse of Numbers, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. So often we struggle to read Leviticus because we finish Exodus and we're like, okay, new book, new story. But no, this is book three of the same story that God's been telling since Genesis 1. And it's also vital to know, when the Israelites wrote stories, they would not put the most important part near the end as like a grand finale. The Israelites thought very differently than we do. As Americans, we hear a story and we know that the action, the twist, the moral of the story, it always happens near the end of the book, right? The Israelites didn't think like this. They saw storytelling like climbing up a mountain, where the first part of the story was the climb up, the middle part was the, was the peak of the mountain. That was the pinnacle. That was the climax of the story, the most important part. And then the third part was the descent. And in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of Moses, which book is at the center? Leviticus is. Because Leviticus is trying to answer the most important question of the Bible. How do we get back into God's presence? I think that's the reason that Israelite children were taught Leviticus first. They saw this book as central to their understanding of who God is and how they were to worship him and relate to him. And I'd actually argue the whole Bible is trying to answer that question. That ever since Genesis 3, man has been asking, how do we get back to Eden? And that's why when we read the end of Revelation, heaven is depicted as a garden with the tree of life at the center. And God is there. And there will be no more temple because God will dwell with his people. That the whole Bible, all of scripture, is heading back to the place where God's people, once again, can dwell in God's presence. Because that is mankind's greatest problem, is it not? You see, all of us have followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. And our sin has made it impossible for us to dwell with God. God is holy. He is pure goodness. And he is so holy, so good that he cannot be around anything that is unholy without actively and justly annihilating it. Just like the sun, God's glory is good and life-giving. Without the sun, we'd all die. But if we were to jump in a spaceship and fly directly towards the sun, it's only a matter of time before we're completely consumed by it. Just like the sun, God is good but dangerous. And our sin makes it impossible to get close. 
Why? Because every time that we sin, every time that we break God's commandments, every time we do something evil, we're separating ourselves further and further from God. With every lie, with every careless word, with every transgression, we're making it impossible to live with God. And that's even why hell is depicted as this final separation, this outer darkness from the presence of God. Hell is that final and eternal separation from God where the light of his face does not shine. But despite Israel's sin, despite our sin, God still calls sinners to come near. God still makes a way for sinners to be close to him. Look back to verse 2. First off, notice that when Moses writes, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, that word offering is not the word offering. We don't have an English word for what that word is. But that's why we translate it offering. It's literally the thing brought near. That's the most basic way you can translate it. And so an offering is you're coming to the, offer, the altar with your thing and you're, you're presenting your offering before God. And so if you look at verse 2, actually that word brings is the same word as the word offering. Uh, we, we, we oftentimes think about Leviticus as all about sacrifices, but if you read Leviticus and you look for the word sacrifice, it's barely in there. I think it's in it like twice. This book is not about sacrifices. It's about offering, which means coming near to God. So in verse two, this is going to sound clunky, but if you translate it like very literally, verse two, Moses is saying, when anyone brings near the thing you bring near, and I know that sounds silly, but to an ancient Israelite, this would have been world-changing. God is calling us to come near. And that's the point all throughout this book is that God keeps calling man to draw near to him. And something that absolutely blew my mind this week is, is also in verse two. You see that word that, that says anyone, some of your translations may say man. In Hebrew, there's two words that, that you can use for man. There's either ish or there's Adam, which means man. And that word in verse two is actually the word Adam. Now, you can translate Adam to man because that's what it means. And I think that this, this verse is saying, yes, if anyone comes near. But once again, if we take it in a very literal way, I think, I think what Moses is doing is there's a, and what God is doing is a play on words. He's saying, if there's any Adam who brings near the thing that, brought, that is brought near. And does that just completely change how you read this book? God is recreating new Adams out of anyone who comes near. That though you and I were alienated and separated from God, God calls us to draw near to his presence just like Adam did in the garden through these offerings. And that's the first way God calls his people. God calls us to draw near to himself. But of course, because of our sin, we can't do that. We cannot draw near unless we make atonement. Which leads us to the second way God calls. He calls us to make atonement. Look to verses 3 through 5. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priests. They shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now here is where we get into the weird stuff, right? How do we get back into God's presence? 
Well, Leviticus starts off by telling us about burnt offerings. And the reason we call it a burnt offering is that after you kill the animal, you burn everything on the altar. We're going to see that there are some offerings that you give, or sometimes you get some stuff back, like you give it, the priest makes it holy, and then you get to eat a meal. But in the burnt offering, everything was laid on the altar, and you got nothing back. In fact, when Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis, that was a burnt offering because God was calling Abraham to give his only son, his all for him. The burnt offering carried this idea of complete and total surrender. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is the story of this woman who showed up uninvited to a party where Jesus was eating and she goes to Jesus and she has this jar of expensive perfume and she just pours it all. I mean, she dumps it on his feet. The whole house is filled with the smell of this perfume. And the New Testament tells us that this perfume would have cost about a year's wages. So, of course, Judas, who, who didn't care about the poor, he just cared about the money. He, he's very upset. and He says, why this waste? Surely this perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. And, of course, you read the story and Jesus is actually quite pleased with this woman. And I think that part of it was that she was offering to Jesus an offering of complete surrender. She's doing what Leviticus 1 is actually talking about. She unapologetically poured out her most valuable possession to honor Jesus, and it was a pleasing aroma to Jesus. Now, looking back to verse 4, we see that word atonement, which literally means at one moment, your sin is covered. When I say at one moment, I want you to say your sin is covered. At one moment, your sin is covered. Amen. The animal serves as a covering for your sin. Just like when Adam and Eve realized they were naked and they were ashamed of their nakedness and their sin, so they made covering for themselves of fig leaves. And even though they deserved to die, God killed an animal for them, the first death recorded in the Bible. And he took the skin from the animal and he used it to cover the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve. And once again, you see how this all connects with the grand story of the Bible. God even killed that animal at the entrance of the Garden of Eden while they were on their way out of Eden. So at the entrance of the tent of meeting in Leviticus 1, we have new Adams drawing near to cover their sin, to cover their shame through these animal offerings. But of course, it can't just be any animal. Verse 3 says that it must be a male without blemish. Why a male? Well, probably because males were more valuable back in that day. One male could get lots of other females pregnant, but females can only take one pregnancy at a time. So the male animals would have been more valuable. So this was seen as a costly sacrifice, a costly offering. And not just any animal, but a perfect animal. If you're going to bring an offering, you can't just bring some sick goat that was going to die anyway. You bring your best. And it's interesting. We quoted Psalm 15 earlier which says, O Lord, who may draw near to your tent? And the answer literally in Psalm 15, he whose walk is blameless. And that word blameless in Psalm 15 is the exact word in verse three that is translated without blemish. And believe it or not, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, be perfect or without blemish, as your heavenly father is perfect or without blemish. When Jesus said that, he was calling back to the offerings in Leviticus that were to be perfect or without blemish. So you have to bring this perfect animal to the tent, and then you have to lay your hands on its head. Why do you do that? By laying your hands on an animal, you are appointing this animal to be your representative. 
The idea is that you have sins and blemishes. You're not blameless. So you need a perfect animal to represent you before the Lord. And you need that animal to die to cover your sin and to make you clean. That's why the next step would be for the priest to come over and to take the blood from this animal you just killed. And they start pouring blood on the sides of the altar. Now, what on earth is all that about? As we dive deeper into Leviticus, one of the things we learn is that the life of an animal is in its blood. The blood was considered the holiest part of the animal, so holy that the priests, not not the worshipers, you didn't handle the blood, the priests did. They were to deal with the blood and use it to purify the altar before you even got close to the altar with your sin. And then in verses 6 through 9, look with me. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron and the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the, uh, on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I'm going to stop there. For whatever reason... I just always assumed when I thought about the sacrifices of the Old Testament that the priest did all the work, that you brought the goat and then they, they just took care of it all. But it's not the priests here that are killing the animals. It's the average worshiper. After the priest poured the blood on the altar, it was your job to chop it up and to clean it. You'd clean the legs and the entrails because those are the dirtiest parts of the animal. The entrails were full of excrement and the animals walked around outside in this day and so their legs would get covered in filth. And see the idea, even this perfect animal needs to be cleaned before it's offered to Yahweh. And I know if you are not a butcher, if you're not a hunter, if you're not an ancient Israelite, this bloody process sounds utterly repulsive to you. And it probably was, but I want you to notice how involved the worshiper would be. This wasn't just showing up for three songs in a sermon. When you needed to offer this sacrifice and get atonement, you had to sacrifice your own wealth by either buying an animal or bringing a perfect animal from your own flock. Back then, you needed these animals to survive. And then you had to bring it to the entrance of the tent. You had to lay your hands on its head to be your representative. You had to kill it, and then you had to chop it up and clean it. Now, that's pretty intense. And this whole process was a very real picture that your sin leads to death. And it's through this process the Lord is pleased. Why is he pleased by that? Because his wrath and his anger against you is satisfied. The problem we have today is that we have no tent of meeting. In fact, this church is called a church because it's not a temple. We don't have a temple today. There is no temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed thousands of years ago. So where on earth can we go to draw near to God? Where on earth can we go to make atonement? Well, in John chapter 10, when Jesus said, I am the door and he who enters by me shall be saved. He was quoting Leviticus 1.3. What do I mean by that? That word door Jesus uses in John 10 is the same word he's calling back from Leviticus 1.3 that we see the entrance to the tent of meeting. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus was saying he was the true and better entrance to the tent of meeting. Jesus was saying that he was the true and better door to God's presence. And that's why he said in John 10, anyone who enters by me will be saved. But Jesus wasn't just the true and better door. He was also the true and better offering from the herd. Jesus was the true and better male or son without blemish. 
And I know what you're probably thinking. Well, Jesus wasn't burned on an altar. He wasn't burned at all. And you're absolutely right. But I think Jesus was a burnt offering. Here's why. That word burnt and burnt offering actually has nothing to do with fire in the original language. That word burnt is actually literally go up. So this is a go up offering. The reason we call it a burnt offering is it goes up in smoke. So it's the idea, like when you light a candle and the wax burns, it goes up in smoke. So did this animal from the flock. It's almost like this offering is teleporting from earth to heaven so that it becomes a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God. And that's why some people call this not the burnt offering, but an ascension offering. And now we think back to Jesus. What happened to Jesus after he rose from the grave? After Jesus would rise from the day grave, he would ascend to heaven. Jesus would go up before God in the heavenly place. And Hebrews 9 says that, that Jesus ascended to heaven so that he could enter the perfect tent of meeting, the tent not made with human hands. And he entered not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood, having purchased eternal life for all who would believe. And Jesus presented himself to his father and presented his blood to make us perfectly clean for all time. Jesus went up to heaven. He ascended to heaven, just like the go-up offering of Leviticus 1, so that we could have a perfect and everlasting atonement, and so that unclean sinners like you and I could enter God's presence. And today, if you feel naked, if you feel ashamed because of your sin, just like Adam and Eve did, if you feel guilty because of the sins you committed, I have incredible news for you. Because today, if you'll humble yourself and turn from your sins and turn to Jesus, the true and better go-up offering, you can be washed and made clean by his blood. Because not only did God call his people to make atonement back in Leviticus, he still calls us to make atonement today. But now through the offering of his son. And that's the second way God calls. But the final way God calls is this. God calls all of us, rich or poor. Look with me to verses 10 through 13. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let's stop there. If you're paying attention, then you should have noticed that verses 10 through 13 are almost identical to verses 3 through 9. The only major difference is that the first go-up offering was that of a bull, but now we're talking about sheep and goats. Why the change? Why are we talking about sheep and goats now? We'll keep reading in verse 14. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out of the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for the ashes. He shall tear, its, uh, tear it open by its wings, but not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We went, we went from bulls to goats and sheep and now birds. 
And in these verses, instead of washing the, the inner organs, the worshiper shall remove the crop, which was the same equivalent for a bird, and throw it to the east for the, the place where the ashes were. And it's interesting that when Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, which direction did they go? Anybody? East. east. Which is the inspiration for John Steinbeck's famous novel, East of Eden, is that there's this direction out of God's presence to the east, and you would enter God's presence at the center meeting from the east. And the idea is that just as Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden to the east because they had become unclean, you cast out the unclean part of this bird away from God's presence to the east. But why do we go from bulls to goats and sheep to birds? It was because God was accommodating the people based on how much they could afford. Bulls were the most expensive, and because birds were everywhere in the Middle East, birds were the least expensive offering. The birds were the sacrifice of the poor. And notice that all these sacrifices, no matter the cost, all of them are pleasing aromas to the Lord. Which tells you what? That God calls all of us to draw near, rich or poor, both the wealthy and the poor. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus' parents show up at the temple... They didn't offer a bull. They didn't offer a sheep or a goat. What did they offer? But two turtle doves, which tells us that Jesus was born into the poorest class of people in Israel. And that when Jesus died, he was homeless. He had no assets, nothing to leave behind but the clothes on his back. But God did not despise his offering at the cross. Our God calls all of us rich or poor. And that's how you even see in this ancient book, there's wisdom here for how we are to treat the poor and not to discriminate based on wealth. This book is beautiful and wonderful. And remember, my prayer this morning is that you could sit down and read Leviticus as Christian scripture and enjoy it. Because in Leviticus 1, we found three ways God calls us. He calls us to come near, to make atonement, and he calls all of us rich or poor. So how does this priestly tech manual speak to us as Christians? How should our lives be different after this morning? Well, I have four pastoral charges for you. I have four ways that Leviticus 1 should change our lives as Christian. First pastoral charge, sit down and read Leviticus. Sit down and read Leviticus. I will admit this is one of the hardest books in the Bible for us to relate to. But I hope you've seen just from this morning how much it has for us as Christians. And I am so excited to study through this book with you. But see if you can sit down and meditate on these words in your own quiet time. And, and let me give you some advice that's going to make this process 10 times easier. Listen up. If you sit down to read Leviticus, read a chapter of Leviticus and read one chapter of Hebrews. If you do this in one month's time, you'll read the whole book of Leviticus and you'll read Hebrews twice. Because the book of Hebrews is actually in many ways a commentary on the Old Testament sacrificial system. And Hebrews explains how Leviticus points to Christ. I'd even never recommend for a new believer, don't start with Leviticus. You need some training, you need, right? But, but reading these two books together will help you unlock the full meaning of this book. And I think there's so much beauty and wonderful ways this book speaks to. So let me just encourage, it'll change the way you read this book if you do this. Second pastoral charge, welcome all people to come near to God. Welcome all people to come near to God. In Luke 21, Jesus was in the temple and he looked and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury and they were very proud and loud about how much they were giving. And then up comes this poor widow 
with two very small copper coins. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. It is a real danger in church to treat some people better than others because of how much they might give to the church. And frankly, that kind of thinking is demonic. We cannot be afraid to call out sin because someone might stop giving or they might leave the church. We cannot. That's where I'm blessed at this church that I have no idea how much any of you give. I turn my back and I'm like, I have no idea. So if I'm coming at you and rebuking you for your sin, I don't care if you leave or not because we have to be faithful to the word of God. I would say to those who count the money, like that's a blessed work. It's a great service to the church. But be so, so careful with that knowledge not to discriminate against those who give a lot and those who give little. Because in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord does not despise the offering of the poor and neither should we. We shouldn't treat anyone better or worse based on their net worth. God does not despise despise the worship of the poor and neither should we. Third pastoral charge, offer up your life to God. Offer up your life to God. Paul wrote in Romans 12, therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Where's Paul getting this image from? Leviticus 1. Like Paul's pulling this image of the burnt offering, of the go up offering. He says, you Christians do this with your lives. Paul called us to offer up our lives as offerings to God, just like Leviticus 1 talks about. So offer up your everything to God and lay it on the altar. And final pastoral charge, draw near to God through Christ. Draw near to God through Christ. Jesus is the true and better door. He is the entrance to God's presence. Jesus is the true and better offering. His blood is more powerful than 10 million bulls or goats. Jesus is the true and better go-up offering. He has ascended so that he could present his blood to God and to purify forever all who would believe. And if you haven't already, turn from your sin and put your faith alone in Jesus and draw near to God today. And especially for believers, right now, if you feel dead in your walk, if you feel far from God, draw near to him once again through Jesus. That's our access to God. That's our relationship to God is through Christ. So draw near to God through Jesus. And that's what Leviticus 1 is all about. And let's pray. Dear Almighty Father, all scripture has been breathed out by you. So thank you for your word in Leviticus. And may it continue to change and alter us as we seek to live our lives as pleasing sacrifice to you. It's in Christ's name, by the power of his blood, we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.